Some weeks I have the joy of standing before you feeling wildly prepared and ready for what God is going to say and do. And other weeks I come before you feeling completely unqualified to stand here. And this week it's really a mix of both. Um, See, sometimes I show up with a great plan and what I think God wants to do and then he does something different. And what I wasn't planning on sharing with you today I feel is worth beginning with. These last two weeks have kind of sucked. Personally, they've been great. My wife and kids, they're wonderful. We've been really enjoying the summer months or weeks, I guess. But um, as a pastor, it kind of sucked. You see, a, a couple weeks ago, a lady that I was counseling and meeting with and helping her find Jesus in the midst of some really extreme trauma and pain. She died suddenly. And I was working with the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking, and they knew her, and so they were grieving and asked me to come and join them, and I did. And I thought, this sucks, but I know our hope in Jesus. And this last Monday night, I spent a couple hours in the hospital anticipating someone's last breath, and thankfully it didn't happen, but it's probably coming soon. And Friday night, Dell got in this car accident because somebody, a 19-year-old, stole a vehicle and was driving reckless and hit him. And this morning, I opened a package that I had forgot was on my doorstep last night, and it was a gift I ordered three months ago for this lady who died two weeks ago. And I showed up this morning here today, early like I usually do, to find several of our neighbors who don't have a place to live sleeping on our porch. And when I woke some of them, they were less than happy to be woken and less than eager to move and more eager to throw things and be angry and filled with all kinds of hurtful words. And so... For the first time since we moved in, I got the police involved, and I thought that would be that. And then more of our neighbors who don't have a home came by with the same kind of spirit and hurt and pain, and once again, the police returned. All before 9 a.m. It's been a productive morning. And I wasn't prepared or planning on sharing any of that with you. In fact, I had a whole different start to this message and this sermon series, but it feels fitting. See, our world is really, really broken. And maybe right now our, your life is free from that. Maybe right now things are going really well. And there's a lot of peace and joy And everything looks great. But at some point, at some point that won't be the case. At some point, death will come near your door, either with somebody you care about or perhaps you yourself. Sickness will plague you. Brokenness and hurt will surround you and there will be people that are hurting and you'll say, I have nothing to offer and nothing to give. Now what? And it's in those times where it's easy to look and see, God, where are you? 
where it's easy to look and say, God, why aren't you doing the thing I want you to do or moving the way I hope you'd move or changing the things I wish would change? Why aren't you? Today we're beginning a series called Life After Exile. We're going to explore Ezra and Nehemiah, two books of the Old Testament, where the people of Israel are wrestling with, where have you been, God? See, for over 70 years, they've been living in exile. Exile that was forced upon them. For over 70 years, they've been living as people, strangers in the land, servants and slaves to masters who worship other gods, who require them to do the same. They've been living in exile because of their sin and their brokenness. See, for them, they had a warning. In fact, they had lots of warnings. God repeatedly said to the people of Israel, turn back to me or else. Come to me or you'll lose everything. Trust me and it'll be okay. And time and time again, the people sought to do things in their own strength and their own power and their own knowledge to pursue their own passions and their own desires and in doing so to say, God, we don't need you until just like he said, everything fell apart and they weren't okay and they were in exile. And there he continued to meet them in exile, but it was very different where he'd previously promised to meet them in the temple, to come when their sacrifices were brought, to meet them in the sacrifice, to be there in his real presence for them, where they could know with confidence their prayers were answered. In exile, they didn't have that. They held on to hope, perhaps God will answer our prayers because he said he will, but right now, life is not okay. Perhaps he'll make things right because that's what he's done before, but right now things are not okay. And this was the state of the people for 70 years. In Ezra and Nehemiah, originally these were two books combined as one book. Some scholars think that they were written by different people. Some think they were written by the same people or person. Uh, They're not entirely sure and there's not consensus. But in our English Bibles, we've separated these two books. And what's, what's good to know about these books before we dive into the life after exile, returning from that pain and that brokenness, what's really good to know is Ezra and Nehemiah are the last of the history books of the people of God. Now, technically, Esther comes in our order in the Bible next, but chronologically, it falls in the middle of this story. So the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the conclusion of God's working in his people, at least up until that point. And if you read the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see a theme that resonates. Even after exile, something is missing. Even after returning to the promised land, being restored to what they had before, being given even more, things are not quite yet okay. And there's a thematic reason the author of Ezra and Nehemiah, whether it was one or multiple, intentionally leaves these books hanging there. Because for the people of God, as their history comes to a close in the Old Testament, they need to know that things aren't finished yet. 
It's not okay for things to be the way they are right now. But someone or something is coming later that'll make it all better. And so we dive in to Ezra today. In the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three key characters. You have Zerubbabel, he's a priest. It was his job to lead the people to connect with God. Imagine having that job when you're in exile and you're not allowed to worship your God. Imagine being responsible for helping people connect with God and his word and trust in his promises and know his goodness in a world where that's neither allowed nor welcomed. Zerubbabel, the first of the characters in this story, he's tasked with leading the people back into their promised land and not only that, to rebuild the temple. And to rebuild the altar. Along comes Ezra in a little bit. And Ezra, which we'll look more at next week, he uh, reshapes the life of the community to be centered around what does God intend for you? How do you connect with God each and every day? Where is he in your life? But first, Zerubbabel comes along to say, how do we meet with God? Now, we live in an age where church buildings are really nothing. You can build them pretty cheap or you can build them really expensively. You can have really old church buildings like this one or brand new church buildings that will fall down in 10 years. You can meet in a movie theater. You can meet in your house. You can meet wherever you want in our world today in the name of connecting with God. That wasn't always the case. You see, for the Jewish people, God encountered them time after time in very specific places and only very specific people. And after he led them out of Egypt as the angel of the Lord was leading them in this pillar of fire and this cloud by day, as God was there to meet with them, he told them to build a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place that God could come and be with them. And whenever God wanted to move the tabernacle would move with them. So wherever God was, the people went. And it wasn't like they were chasing after him because he was absent, but rather there was this invitation to draw near, to come into his presence, to be his people, no matter what life may bring. And David had this grand dream someday to build a temple, a permanent space where the world will see God is here. For us. And when that first temple was built, God's presence came in such a powerful way that they were overwhelmed with awe and wonder. It filled the temple with smoke, a sign for the people that God was there for them. And so for hundreds of years, they brought their sacrifices. Something God had commanded, they brought their sacrifice to that place. And often when we read the Old Testament, we see these sacrifices and we think it was a work they had to do to please God. That's not the way the Bible phrases it. Rather, because you're my people, because of who I've called you to be, come near to me. And in these sacrifices, the people received a gift from God. The forgiveness of sins. And so they would bring their sacrifice as a recognition. You have called us yours and promised to forgive us. So here we are again, broken and in need of you, God. 
And time and time again, they'd bring these sacrifices, and there in the temple, God would meet them, and they knew he was with them. But when they went into exile, that temple was destroyed, every bit of it. The altar smashed. And so for 70 years, they were left wondering, has God left us? Is there any hope again? This is where Zerubbabel comes in, in Ezra chapter 3. At the beginning, they rebuild the altar. And when they rebuild the altar, they praise God because now they can worship the way they were intended to. Now they have a place where they know they can come before God and receive the forgiveness of sins. And there in that place, they can be made right with God. We're going to begin today in chapter 3, verse 8. If you'd like to follow along in one of the physical Bibles in front of you, it's on page 488. And if you have your own Bible or an electronic Bible, you can use that too. I just don't know the page numbers there. Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year after coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek. If you ever read the Bible and you get weird names, don't worry. Just like say them with confidence and people will believe you're correct, okay? They made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Remember, it's a history book, so it's trying to really specifically point you. These are the people who are doing this work. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. The people have come, they're rebuilding this place where God has promised to meet them. They're laying the foundation that the walls can be established and they're believing God is good. Look at how he's restoring us. In the midst of our brokenness, look at how far we've come. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And you would think Here at this moment, there'd be great joy for all the people. But for some, there was great sadness. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. They have this moment where the promises God has made for them 
appear to be coming true. This temple's being rebuilt. God is in our midst. He's for us. And yet those who were old enough to know better knew that even what they were building was lacking. Even what they were building was not as good as it was before. Now, perhaps this was them harking back to those good old glory days like we sometimes imagine, right? Like, if only we could go back to those days when everything was perfect. And sometimes, in hindsight, we forget just how broken those days actually were. Like those days when the first temple was there and the people refused to worship God. They were invited into his presence and yet they'd rather do their own thing. They could come day and night anytime they wanted to be with God. But they were too busy and distracted and interested in other things. Perhaps these people were weeping because the former temple had been nicer. Or perhaps they saw that it didn't matter how great the foundation or the structure. If the hearts of the people were not turned back to God, the quality of the temple was useless. If the hearts of the people were not rejoicing in who God is more than in what this building looked like, none of it mattered. So some are shouting with joy, for God is good, and others are weeping for the things they've lost. As we gather together in worship, Sometimes we gather and we shout with joy. Now, we're Lutheran, so we don't shout that much, right? That would be uncomfortable. And we don't sing too loud, and we certainly don't move or dance much, because that's, that's a little strange. But here they're gathering and they're dancing. Now, we do have symbols like they had, so we're kind of like them, right? When we gather together, some come in rejoicing. God, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever, forever. But others come broken. God, I'm hurting and I'm weeping. I don't know if this is a place where I can say that. I'm questioning where you've been for all this time and why you've left me. Are you really coming back or is this just another temporary fix? When we gather in this place, we gather in the hopes that God will meet us here. Now, I've seen a dozen times on Facebook somebody say something along the lines of, I don't need to go to church because I can worship on my kayak. Yes, you can. You can worship God anywhere you are. In fact, the people of Israel still worshiped God in exile when they weren't supposed to. When it was a potentially, or potentially punishable by death, they still drew near to him. The thing that was missing for them in exile was not the ability to draw near to God, but the promise that their sins had been forgiven. The promise that he would be with them no matter what happened. That's what was missing in exile. And now they've come back to rebuild this temple. As the story unfolds, uh, usually when God is on the move and his people are doing something good, opposition arises. Sure enough, some people get mad and the rebuilding of the temple gets put on hold for a long time. And then in chapter 5, they begin to rebuild it. In chapter 6, they finally finish it. 
So that's where we're going to pick up this story today. Chapter 6, verse 13. If you're using one of the Bibles from the pews or the chairs upstairs, uh, it's just like the next page, okay? Pretty easy to get there. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates, uh, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through, by the, or through the prophesying of Haggai and the, the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Atarxes, king of Persia. You see, what happened was these kings, these pagan kings, actually were the ones who initiated the process of returning from exile. Cyrus and Darius and Artaxes, ooh, that one's a tough one. All three of them, these pagan kings, recognized you as the people of God need to be allowed to return and to worship, to rebuild this temple. And when the opposition arose, it was these pagan kings who ultimately said to the opposition, stop, let them do this thing. So now upon that decree, the temple is built and this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. Now that this space had been rebuilt, though not yet as great as it was before. The altar is rebuilt. They come before God to again do as he commanded, to remember who he is and the relationship they had with him, and to receive that very promised forgiveness. As a brief aside, I'm very grateful that we don't have to sacrifice 712 animals to uh, be able to have that same reminder today. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The people return from exile. And finally, they get to worship the way they were created to. Finally, they get to not only worship, they get to gather and celebrate something significant that they couldn't celebrate the whole time they were in exile. Passover. 
a meal that God had given to them, that they would be reminded over and over and over again of his faithfulness, that when they were enslaved, he came and rescued them, that when they were bound and trapped and broken, he came and restored them. Finally, they got to gather and to eat this meal, this meal that would remind them of God's faithfulness and his forgiveness and would strengthen them in all the rest of their worship and all the rest of their life and everything else the community did, that they would know God is with them, God is for them, they are forgiven. Life after exile begins with this. However we've been exiled, whatever pain we've walked through, however far from God we've been, for whatever reason we've been far from God, we need to come back to the promise that he is with us, to the meal that he's given to us, that we can celebrate, that we can eat and we can drink and know that we are forgiven. And that way, whatever tomorrow holds, For Dell, whatever tomorrow holds for Alan, whatever tomorrow holds for Justin, our neighbor, whatever tomorrow holds for you and for me in this broken world, we can know that God is with us and he's for us and he forgives us. And so I want to challenge those of you who think the kayak is just as good as being here in person. It's really good, but you miss out on the very body and blood, the meal he's given for us, that we can be assured whatever comes, it'll be okay. Will you join me in prayer? God, as the people return from exile, they returned with joy to gather, to know with confidence that you have met them there, that you have forgiven them of their sin. As they returned from brokenness, being disconnected from you, you brought them back in to rejoice in the midst of their sorrow. God, from all of our exile, even the self-imposed exile, when we remove ourselves from your community and your presence, we ask that you would forgive us. For all of the times we think we can do this on our own, we ask that you would convict us. For all of the times we think that gathering with one another in your presence to eat Your body and blood, this meal you've given, is not that important. Would you help us today to know that it is here in this place, in this moment, that we can have strength to withstand whatever may come, to love beyond our limits, to serve when we have nothing left, to comfort those who grieve, to be in the midst of our brokenness. God, for all of us who are here today, and it is not okay, would you meet us in this place, and in this moment, in this time, would you make us okay? We 
pray all of this in Jesus' name.